<coughs> okay, well, thank you very much, Hannah. That's uh, very kind of you. Thank you uh, all for having me very much. I'm very glad uh, to be here. Uh, the invitation to come and speak here actually came uh, from Sister Andrea, who's very difficult to say no to. Uh, and the title that she gave me was, was just one word, uh, creation. Uh, and it's often it's these one word uh, titles that are the most daunting to approach. Uh, daunting because the, the subject matter tonight is, is literally everything. Uh, all things visible and invisible, as we say in the creed. We're looking tonight not only at everything that exists, but at the very fact uh, of existence itself. We're looking tonight at the most difficult and most fundamental questions uh, of philosophy and natural theology that the human beings uh, have ever asked. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is the universe the way it is? More personally, why, why do I exist? The Catechism of the Catholic Church, in, in the beginning of, of its section on creation, says... Catechesis on creation concerns the very foundations of human and Christian life, for it makes explicit the response of the Christian faith to the basic question of men of the all, that men of all time has, have asked themselves. Where does everything that exists come from and where is it going? Where does everything exist come from and where is it going? Catechism says these two questions are inseparable and they are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. So when I sat down at my desk uh, to write this talk, I was reminded of the probably apocryphal story uh, of the philosophy professor whose final exam for his course was the one word question, why? And as the story goes, the top mark was given to a student who responded with a two word essay, why not? <laughs> philosophy students. <laughs> well, <laughs> we in the faith movement have an even more satisfying two word, quest, two -word answer both to the question why and to the title that we have here tonight. And that answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to, to the most fundamental questions that human beings uh, have ever asked. I always joke with the kids in, in the primary school where I'm chaplain that if I ask a question, the answer is probably Jesus. So, but it's, and so it is. Well, it's tempting just to, just to leave the talk at that and we can go and pray confident and go on with the rest of our evenings. We probably need to go a bit deeper than that. But nonetheless, that's, that is the fundamental answer to the question. That's the contribution that the faith movement makes to the challenges and the doubts and the questions of the modern world. Once more, to proclaim Jesus Christ, to propose him anew as the one through whom and for whom all things were made. The whole created universe from the smallest atom to the largest galaxy exists because of him, exists because of God. From God they came, towards God they are going, and in God alone do they find their deepest meaning. Jesus Christ is, in Father Holloway's expression, which we've heard so many times, the master key who unlocks the meaning of the universe and who unlocks the, the mystery of my own personal life too. It's in his inexhaustible depths that we'll find all our answers. Nonetheless, I think I got off slightly lighter with my topic than Archbishop Tertalia did. Uh, who, if your term card is to be believed, a fortnight ago gave a talk on the Trinity. When I was uh, studying theology, uh, I came across an excellent book by Stephen Bullivant, who some of you may know, uh, called The Trinity, How Not to Be a Heretic. It's, <laughs> it's slightly embarrassing to be admit. It's sort of a dummy's guide to theology. It's very thin, but it's thin enough that you could hide it in, in, a, in between the more impressive tomes of St. Augustine or St. Thomas or so on. Uh, and nonetheless, and still avoid... Uh, comparing God to an ice cube or a Mars bar when Trinity Sunday comes around. I'm sure that Archbishop Tertullian did none of those things uh, and he didn't need any dummy's guide uh, to do so. 
uh, he, he spoke perhaps, I'm not sure I was talking to Hannah just, just before we've begun, uh, he spoke perhaps about the distinction that's made sometimes in theology between, the, between theology, strictly speaking, that's the talk about God uh, as he is in himself, sometimes known as the imminent trinity, and economy, which is talk about God as he acts in creating the world and revealing himself to the world and ultimately redeeming the world, sometimes known as the economic trinity. To put it crudely, the, the distinction that we make in our minds uh, between who God is and, and what God does. There's some debate as to how helpful that distinction actually is, especially to the, to the length that some uh, modern theologians ha have pushed it. But I think the eternal trinity, God as he is in himself, as Archbishop Tutalia spoke about, is where we also have to begin a talk on creation. As Father Holloway says, creation itself is a fact which proceeds from the special relationship of the Son to the Father through the Holy Spirit. God is eternally Trinity, because triunity belongs to his very nature. Things like creation and revelation and redemption are things that God does, and he would still be God if he hadn't done them. This, I think, is most profoundly, I'm not sure if, if, if Archbishop Tertullius spoke about this, but that's really what St. John means when he says that God is love. He's saying something quite different from the fact that God loves the world, God loves you, and God loves me, but rather that God's very identity, God's very essence uh, is love. What it means for him to be is eternal love. God is holy and only love, the pure and perfect and everlasting love of three persons in relationship, the loving father, the beloved son, and the per personified love that proceeds uh, from them both. This means, uh, to put it bluntly and perhaps slightly harshly, God doesn't need us. God was literally perfectly happy without us. It means that God didn't need to create the world and he didn't need to create you and me. He wants us and he desires us and he chooses us and we're infinitely precious in his eyes. But he doesn't actually need us to remember that, that God is not bored or lonely or lacking in any sort of fulfillment. God the Father did not create the world in order to fill the eternal mansions of heaven with the pitter-patter of tiny feet. The incarnation of the Son was not undertaken as a, an exciting adventure to provide distraction from the eternal dullness of being the Son of the Father. The Holy Spirit was not bestowed upon the apostles at Pentecost so that he wouldn't feel left out of the action. No, God, God created us and communicated himself to us and redeemed us entirely out of love. Free and generous and selfless love. Love that was given not to satisfy an inadequacy on his part, not in expectation of some quid pro quo, but which is entirely given to us for our benefit. It's worth remembering that when we go to pray, that it's God who's doing us a favour and allowing us to speak to him, not the other way round. As we put it in one of the prefaces at Mass, you have no need of our praises, yet our thanksgiving is itself your gift, since our praises add nothing to your greatness but profit us for salvation. <clears throat> God is not a narcissist in need of our affirmation. It's us who stand in need of him and in need of the love which he freely and generously bestows upon us. As the Catechism puts it in its very, the very first paragraph of the whole book, in a plan of sheer goodness, God freely created man to share in his own blessed life, the life of the Blessed Trinity, as Archbishop Tutalia uh, explained it to you last week, two weeks ago. God <clears throat> created us, uh, not spontaneously or by necessity, not because he needed us, not because he was lonely, but deliberately and freely and lovingly. 
Pope Francis in Laudato Si puts it like this. The scriptures tell us that the world came about as the result of a decision, and this exalts it all the more. The creating word expresses a free choice. The universe did not emerge as the result of arbitrary omnipotence, a show of force or a desire for self-assertion. Creation is of the order of love. God's love is the fundamental moving force in all created things. Useful expression of St Thomas Aquinas, creatures came into existence when the key of love opened his hand. God created us out of love and he created us for glory, to share in the glory that is his own, to which we are given privileged act access uh, through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is in the first place in himself. That's what, we, that's what we've been saying about the Trinity. Once again, it, it comes before creation and is, it is independent of it. It's what St. John Paul II called the interior glory, which fills the unlimited depth and infinite perfection of the one divinity in the Trinity of persons in the absolute fullness of being and holiness, and also the fullness of truth and love. So we see that glory in, in Jesus' farewell discourse, if you remember at the Last Supper when he prays to the Father, Father, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The glory of God is the timeless beauty and the infinite perfection of God of God's greatness from all eternity. When we glorify God, we're not making him something that he wasn't before, but rather are acknowledging and recognising and rejoicing in his eternal perfections, the glory he had before the world was made. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory. In the act of creation then, God is showing on the outside his interior glory. St Bonaventure says that God uh, created all things not to increase his glory, but rather to show it forth and to communicate it to us. But wishing to be too sentimentally anthropomorphic, God is demonstrating to us what he's like on the inside. It, in the same way that a gift it reveals the love that, 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 that inspired its giving. When a man gives an extravagant gift to his beloved, He's offering a demonstration of the pre-existent love that, that inspired it and preceded it. If you buy Father Ross a pint in the pub afterwards, it's a good thing to do. Uh, you're manifesting the great esteem and the admiration that you have for him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> when an artist paints a masterpiece, likewise, uh, she's manifesting in a visible way the, the, the interior genius that, that, that is behind it. So in an, in an analogous way with God and his creation. Psalm 19 proclaims, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth the work of his hands. Even without speaking, the whole created world is one great hymn to the praise of God's glory. The book of Baruch, perhaps one of the most underappreciated books in the whole of the scripture, says so beautifully, The stars shone in their watches and were glad. He called them and they said, Here we are. They shone with gladness for him who made them. I was reading uh, the other day that there are at least 100 billion stars in the Milky Way alone, perhaps 10 trillion galaxies in the universe, giving an estimate of around a quadrillion stars. If you don't know what a quadrillion is, it's uh, one with 24 zeros after it. That's a lot of stars. Uh, to put that number in perspective, it's considerably more than the total number of words that have ever been spoken in all of human history. 
This talk is about 6,000 words long. Uh, far better, perhaps, for us to go and look at the night sky for 40 minutes. Because every star in, in the sky uh, expresses much more eloquently than I could God's glory and, and God's, God's, uh, the incredible grandeur of, of, of him who made them. When we see the stars, we're meant to think of the song that the angels chant unceasingly before his face. Holy, 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 heaven and earth are full of your glory, full to the extent of a quadrillion stars. The majesty of God is magnified still the more when we consider that the universe, vast beyond our, our ability to even begin to think about it, was created from nothing, created ex nihilo, as we say. Uh, this doctrine, which is unique to the Judeo-Christian uh, tr tradition, safeguards what we've been saying already, safeguards God's necessary existence, existence and under, underscores his omnipotent freedom in choosing to create. So, as we're saying, God is transcendent. He alone is outside of his creation and doesn't depend on it. He is, as Father Holloway puts it, self-explanatory, self-sufficient and infinite. The creation did not need to exist. It does exist and is explained only because of him. As such, the church fathers described the father of creation as being unbegotten and uncreated in contrast to everything that was that was before. This is the answer to the smart Alec eight-year-old who thinks he has you stumped, usually as a he, when he asks you who created God. Part of God's definition is that he is uncreated. Part of God's definition is that he's uncaused and necessary. He stands outside of and above all of creation. He interacts with it in various ways, but he's always, he always remains radically other. Put another way, all that exists except God himself is contingent on and grounded in the creative decisions and will of God. And his power and freedom are absolutely unlimited. Uh, right now, uh, with the help of Father Bernard, uh, I'm trying to turn one of the rooms in the Cathedral House into an oratory. And it will, when it's complete, <clears throat> be a work of great beauty and harmonious order. But uh, my uh, creative genius is, is limited in all sorts of ways. It's limited by the size and the shape uh, of the room. It's limited by the things that we are able to beg, borrow and steal from, uh, from anywhere else. Uh, and the resources of the cathedral bank account, which, unlike God, are sadly not infinite. My creation will be actually a rearranging of lots of things that were already there. Uh, even if I were able in my abundant spare time uh, to carve all the furniture for myself and, and craft the precious metal and knit the vestments, which is what Father Ross thinks I do in the evenings anyway, uh, <clears throat> I couldn't with any degree of accuracy call it my creation. Not so with the material world. God created everything that exists from nothing. St Theophilus of Antioch says, if God had drawn the world from pre-existent matter, what would be so extraordinary about that? A human artisan makes from a given material whatever he wants, while God shows his power by starting from nothing to make all that he wants. As, as I mentioned, this, this idea of creation out of nothing it is in contrast to many of the prevailing ideas in, in the early Christian world. It goes against the, the classical dictum of Parmenides, which Maria von Trapp had perhaps read in the convent library before she sings to the captain, nothing came from nothing, nothing ever could. The Greek philosophers therefore thought that the material world had always existed in, in some fashion, either for Aristotle as an ordered universe without beginning, mirroring God's eternity and yet still dependent on him as its first cause, or for Plato as a chaotic material realm, 
uh, also without beginning, also co-eternal with God, which at a certain point is brought into order by the demiurge. In the Timaeus, he says, God, therefore, wishing that all things should be good and as far as possible, nothing should be imperfect and finding the visible universe in a state not of rest, but of inharmonious and disorderly motion, reduced it from order, reduced it to order from disorder as he judged the order was in every way better. I'd like to have that made into a little sign to hang in in the sacristy in the cathedral. Order is in, in every way better to disorder. But in early, in early Christianity, this seemed more compatible with, with the scriptures. Justin the Martyr, for example, says, both Plato and those who agree with him, and we ourselves have learned, and you can also be convinced, that by the word of God, the whole world was made out of the substance spoken of before by Moses. He's thinking of Moses as the author of the book of Genesis. Remember, at the beginning, said that the earth was without form or void. It's not until the second century that creation ex nihilo becomes a settled doctrine defended by St. Irenaeus and by St. Augustine and the medieval theologians. Once again, it's St. It's Thomas Aquinas, uh, who, for whom in particular, the doctrine from creation out of nothing was necessary to safeguard our idea of God, this idea of God that we, we have in the Trinity, to, to safeguard God's absolute simplicity and the radically asymmetrical relationship between God and creation. It's important to bear in mind, therefore, that the idea of creation ex nihilo is a metaphysical one. It's not a scientific one. It's neither contradictory with nor the same thing as, for example, the theory of the Big Bang. When we say that creation came from nothing, we're not saying that it came from something very, very small or even that it came from a vacuum of some sort but precisely nothing, non-existence. Being and non-being, existence and non-existence are not scientific, scientific terms, but metaphysical terms. And they're therefore, by definition, beyond the realm of scientific inquiry. The point is a theological one, that God is radically se separate from and independent of the material world. As is so often the case, in the development of doctrine, it emphasises what we don't mean by the idea of creation, namely that ma the material world is co-eternal with God, that he didn't make it by adapting it from something else, or worse, that God somehow develops alongside it and emerges from it. However, that's obviously not to say that modern science has nothing to say on the subject of creation. We, in the faith movement, are very much in favour of scientific inquiry, and we're not afraid of it. As John Henry Newman says, although the vicar of Christ is not a preacher of the theory of gravitation or a martyr for electromagnetism, still he rejoices in the widest and most philosophical systems of intellectual education from an intimate conviction that truth is his real ally as it is his profession and that knowledge and reason are sure ministers to faith. The whole origins of the faith movement uh, and the thought of Father Edward Holloway, why in the years following the Second Vatican Council when so many other theologians with their ideas and, and more especially in their pa pastoral practice were moving away from the traditional teachings of the church and of the council itself, uh, citing as their justification out of all context the Lord's command in St Matthew's Gospel to discern the signs of the times. Father Holloway and Father Nesbitt and others read the signs of the times in the discoveries of modern science and, and came to a quite different conclusion from that of, of the neo-modernists. Rather than capitulation, they saw the possibility of dialogue and, and much more than dialogue. They saw that many cosmologists and physicists and evolutionary biologists and so on were approaching what, as Father Holloway put it in, in a Faith magazine editorial in 1984, 
approaching to the very outskirts of the doctrine of creation and the meaning and the purpose of a cosmos which, in its very structure alone, is forcing the scientist to admit the existence of God. It was to this principle, Father Holloway continues, that the Holy Spirit was at least trying to lead the church during the last Vatican Council. Father Holloway observes that as scientists find out more and more about the vast and complex and yet beautifully ordered material world, they were approaching perilously close to the idea that there was someone whose intelligent, ordered mind was behind it all. Holloway therefore suggests that while each had their distinct methodologies, the autonomy of science from religion or reason from faith is not absolute. There is more than a communion of orders, namely science and religion in the being of man. There is, in the fact of man, a communion of reason and faith within man's own nature. We'll return in a few moments to the nature of man as the pinnacle of creation in the image of God. But Father Holloway's point is not only that is a synthesis, a, a reconciliation between science and religion, between faith and reason possible, but exactly only such a, a synthesis can really satisfy the, the mind and the heart of the human being. Only, can, only that can truly and fully make sense of the world that we live in. This is not a new idea. In, in the, the, fathers of the, the fathers of the church in their own day sought to reconcile the revealed faith of the God of Israel with the truths of classical philosophy. St Albert the Great and St Thomas Aquinas and many others did the same in the Middle Ages. With the extraordinary progress of 20th and 21st century science, it becomes urgently necessary for religious believers to show that the material world that is being discovered is not incompatible with what we find in sacred scripture and the faith that the church has always and everywhere taught. Rather, in Holloway's phrase, religion is the pinnacle of science and the fulfillment of scientific discovery we found in the divine word made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. Should uh, at this point probably put my own cards on the table and say that I'm not by any means a scientist. Uh, my scientific education ended and not especially gloriously with standard grade chemistry. <laughs> as, as, as Hannah said, I, I studied history at university, but my next door neighbors in, in halls were, were two physicists, guys called Owen and James. James was a lapsed Catholic who still kind of believed, wasn't very sure, but kind of believed. And, uh, and Owen was a lifelong atheist who nonetheless was in, inexplicably obsessed with the most Catholic work of, work of fiction of the 20th century, Lord of the Rings. And so from them, I heard all the jokes about the, how the sciences are the only things really worth studying and how art students with our four hours of lecture a week are really just messing around. Why does a history student only open one curtain in the morning? To give him something to do in the afternoon. Ha ha. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we had all sorts of interesting conversations about God and about philosophy. And attending talks, talks not unlike these ones that you have here at Turnbull, I became more and more convinced that Father Holloway was right, that we do need those of you who are studying the sciences, who are studying mathematics and, and so on, who are also deeply rooted in your Catholic faith, to help to deepen and to develop this new, new synthesis, which is the particular mission entrusted to the faith movement. Dedication to scientific study can then become almost an act of worship. A Jesuit priest I got to know in Rome worked at the Vatican Observatory, and the first time he, he took me to, to look at the telescopes, I was very struck by the Latin inscription that went around uh, the outside of the building. Venite adoremus, Deum Creatorem. Come, let us worship God the Creator. In looking through the telescopes at the night sky, uh, these, these Jesuits were worshipping God, worshipping the God who made them. 
For them, their scientific work was not incompatible with their vocations uh, as Christians and as priests. Rather, in the study of astrophysics, they were adoring the God who is the creator of heaven and earth. So we can ask what, what in particular is it about the nature of creation that might lead us to conclude that God was behind it all. First of all, we believe that because God creates in wisdom and in love, which are proper to his own nature, his creation will reflect those in some way. Just as we were saying, an artist puts something of himself into his masterpiece. So we can observe God's fingerprints in the world that he's made. And in the case of man, something very close to a self-portrait. Albert Einstein, in describing the discoveries of the natural sciences, uses a slightly different analogy. He says, uh, I am not an atheist and I don't think I can call myself a pantheist. We, as human beings, are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but he doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being towards God. We see the universe marvellously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. Our limited minds grasp, grasp the mysterious force that moves the constellations. It's interesting that he talks about creation as being like a book. Interesting because St John of the Cross uses exactly the same image. Actually, in, we know as, as Christians that in, in the revelation that God gives to his people, the author of the books jumps off the page, out of the page, and begins to engage with us. In Jesus Christ, we very literally meet the author. We can meet him face to face and we can ask him questions. Stephen Hawking agrees with Einstein, observing that the more we observe about the natural world, the overwhelming impression is one of order. The more we discover about the universe, the more we find that it's governed by rational laws, laws which are observable and testable, laws of which we are not the authors. We live in an inescapably law-governed universe. God's logic and God's reasonability and God's own ordered nature is reflected in this way in the created world. So the universe is not haphazard or arbitrary, but is itself at a deep level logical and reasonable and ordered. It obeys the laws of chemistry, which are themselves logically derived from the laws of physics, many of which can be logically derived from other laws, which describe the behaviour of the universe at the most fundamental level. The discovery and the examination of these laws and their interconnectedness has, has, as many of you are aware, prompted many scientists not to discard the existence of a creator, but to postulate the necessary existence of a lawgiver behind the laws. Scientific progress provides a great deal of answers, and yet at the same time begs the question, where do the laws of physics come from? Why is it that we have these laws rather than some other set? How is it that we have a set of laws that, get, that drives featureless gases to life, to consciousness and to intelligence. Paul Davies answers, answers these questions by arguing that even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith the existence of a law-like order in nature that is at least in part comprehensible to us, such that science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. Such order, in fact, gives scientists the hope of one day arriving at a complete theory, uh, explaining the mechanics of the material world, and which would represent, to quote Hawking again, the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then, as he famously said, we should have the mind of God. We should know the mind of God, if you like, the theory of everything. 
But yet even such a discovery, the discovery of such a scientific theory would not put an end to the matter since on the very previous page, Hawking had asked, even if there is only one possible unified theory, it's just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? Nature is governed by laws, then it's only logical to suppose a lawgiver who wrote the laws of nature. Father Holloway puts it like this. This equation, this, this grand theory, may be looked at from another point of view. To call the moving mass of cosmic energy an equation is to say that the immeasurable sweep of worlds in space through thousands and millions of years of light travel, the swirl of galaxies and radiant power is no chaos or storm of elemental frenzy, but is subject to a law of control and direction within which and through which all things subsist. That is to say that the ordered law-governed universe is heading somewhere. Accordingly, this law-governed universe is apparently fine-tuned against vanishingly small odds to support life and eventually human life, such that if the value of one of even one of the fundamental constants of the basic laws of physics were had been to the slightest degree different, then the emergence of life would have been impossible. The physicist Freeman Dyson writes that the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, knew we were coming. The universe knew we were coming. The universe is made for us. In other words, these laws which govern nature seem to move the universe towards the, the emergence and the sustenance of life. Here too, this scientifically observable process, far from explaining itself, demands an explanation. Some scientists, rather famously, now speculate that this fine-tuning is existed is explained by the existence of multiple universes, so that our universe is one among many others, each of which has different laws and physical constants, and ours happens to belong to one of the subset that is conducive to the appearance of life. These theories are highly speculative, and as far as I can understand them, very dissatisfying intellectually. Uh, they basically say that if there were an infinite number of possibilities, then eventually anything that can happen will happen. But this tells us nothing. And it seems to me to require an awful lot more faith than belief in God. John Swinburne puts it like this. It is crazy to postulate a trillion causally unconnected universes to explain the features of one universe. When postulating one entity, God will do the job. St. John Paul II sums it all up like this. All the observations concerning the development of life lead to a similar conclusion. The evolution of living beings of which science seeks to determine the stages and to discern the mechanism, presents an internal finality which arouses admiration. This finality, which directs beings in a direction for which they are not responsible or in charge, obliges one to suppose a mind which is its inventor, its creator. To speak of chance, or for that matter, an infinite range of possibilities for a universe which presents such a complex organisation in its elements and such marvellous finality in its life, would be equivalent to giving up the search for an explanation of the world as it appears to us. All of the material world, therefore, points beyond itself towards a being who exists outside of the universe as its cause, as its explanation, and who from the very beginning has been controlling and directing the material world by means of natural processes, to the point that it reaches its high point, us, you and me. I mean, us gathered here tonight, although that could also be true the human race in general. Because in the human race, we find something radically new, don't we? Not just that man 
has a bigger brain than other animals, although he does also have that, but that he has an entirely different relationship to the world around him. Man, unlike the, the rest of creation, is not controlled and guided by his material environment, but rather he's free and is capable of himself controlling and directing the world around him, even to the extent of leaving the surface of the earth altogether and travelling into outer space, something that would not occur to even the cleverest of dolphins. Even then, we're not satisfied. We know from our own experience that there exist within us needs and desires which, which are not satisfied by the world around us. Hungers and thirsts which go beyond the material, but which are spiritual. The desire for truth. We have a desire and an ability to appreciate and produce things of beauty. When I go hill walking with my dog, he doesn't stop to admire the view. It's much more interesting in the contents of my packed lunch. But, but perhaps above all, we have a desire for love. We have a desire for a relationship, not only to know, but to be known, not only to be understood, not only to understand, but to be understood. Pope Francis sums it all up in this way. Human beings, even if we postulate a process of evolution, also possess a uniqueness which cannot be fully explained by this, a, a uniqueness which transcends the spheres of physics and biology. The sheer novelty involved in the emergence of a personal being within a material universe presupposes a direct action of God and a particular call to life and to relationship on the part of a thou who addresses himself to another thou. We see this in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, very first book, first books of the Bible, the, the accounts of creation found in Genesis portray in, in beautiful and, and poetic language that's not in contradiction with, with what we've been saying so far, the evidence of what we can observe of the world around us. We find a beginning in which from nothing emerges an order, ordered creation which develops over time, whether that is over six days or 14 billion years. This creation has limits and it has laws and it has a structure written into it. And at its pinnacle stands man, Adam and Eve, who stand out among the goodness of all that God has made, among the quadrillion stars, as even very good, since made in the image and likeness of the creator himself united to creation in his materiality and yet endowed with the breath or, or the spirit of God. This uniqueness, as you know, the spiritual aspect of man's nature is what we call the soul, the spiritual principle within man, which does not come from evolution, but which must come directly from a spiritual being who is himself outside of the material order at the very moment of the emergence of new human life. The soul is possessed by the tiniest unborn child, by people of every race and nation throughout history, even Father Ross, I assure you, by gingers. Where, wherever there is human nature, there is the soul. I think that's where his distinction actually lies. In any case, if it's the soul that makes man it's specifically what he is. It's, his, it's what accounts for his uniqueness among the animals. It's by virtue of the soul that we have the ability to control and to direct and to think and to understand and to appreciate and create things of beauty, to love and to enter into relationships of love above all, in relationship with the thou who calls us into being in the first place. Every time a baby is conceived in the womb of her mother, God creates. God creates once more from nothing, an immortal spiritual soul. He wills another being into existence without whom the world of his creation, the whole of his creation would be somehow incomplete. You and I are a part of his creation, a very special part. Each of us are the product of the creative thought of God. There's no one else in the whole of history, in the whole history of the universe, 
who is quite like you. There are no accidents in the mind of God. Each one of you here, animated by a spiritual soul, is therefore extraordinarily precious in his eyes. Each, each one of us is willed by him and chosen by him and loved deliberately by him into existence. You are his work of art and he doesn't make mistakes. You're meant to be here. God has a plan for each of your lives, even if you don't yet know what that might be. I've said that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, the, the, the being towards which everything else was leading up to. And that's true. But the crown of creation is not an abstract human nature. Rather, it is one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the culmination of God's plan of love. The Catechism says, the mystery of Christ casts conclusive light on the mystery of creation and reveals the end for which in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Because God's ultimate intention was to be united with his creation. The creator wanted to be in relationship with what he had made. It was his intention that his creation would come to participate in his own life, to participate in the blessed life of the Trinity. In Jesus, we have access to that relationship. In Jesus, we have access to the Trinity. And so throughout the whole of human history, just as the material world develops over billions and billions of years, so we see the history of salvation developing. So we see in the, the pages of the Old Testament that God had been preparing to come among us. He spoke to the patriarchs and he spoke to the prophets and he spoke to the people of Israel. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, at various times in the past, and in various different ways. But in the last days, in the days of fulfillment, he came himself. The word who was with God in the beginning, with God eternally, through whom all that exists came to be, was made flesh and dwelt among us. We call this the incarnation. And that's what Father Louise will come to speak about in two weeks' time. Father Louise will say it all and will say it much better than I could. Suffice it for this evening to say that it's towards his talk that this talk is heading because it's towards the incarnation that creation was heading itself. Before I come to my own blessed end, let's, let's conclude. Because of all, all, of, all of creation is summed up in him. He is the word, the wisdom of God made flesh. He is the radiant splendor of God's interior glory made, made visible. He's he coexisted with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. And in the fullness of time, he came among us as man, to reveal all things. His life and his death open up to us, who, is, who are his creation, the mystery of the Trinity, our participation in which is the final purpose of all life and all that exists. Through him and with him and in him, we find the answers to the deepest questions posed by modern science, by the human race throughout history and by our own lives. I'd like to conclude with the words of Father Holloway. <clears throat> Christ the King, the word of wisdom, who is God in very being, the Alpha and the Omega, the uncreated beginning and the uncreated end, in whom all things are fulfilled and transformed, who exists for none of them, and unto whom all things exist in joy. Through his slowly consummating wisdom, all things cohere and grow together in one economy, from the poising of the elements until the Son of Man comes upon the clouds of heaven in, in much power and majesty, and God say to creation within the depth of his holy trinity, it is finished. Behold, I make all things new. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. 